Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos, and welcome to Unboxing Story, where we unpack fiction without the friction. Uh, we have a, a guest today, uh, Matt Crotz. Say hello, Matt. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> uh, so um, give a little taste to people of, uh, of what you do and um, where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, like you said, my name is Matt Crotz, and I write and draw a comic called Curie, and you can find it at mattcrotz.com. Uh, it's an ancient Roman, um, kind of uh, Indiana Jones meets uh, ancient Rome kind of thing in uh, North Africa in the third century, and, uh, and I'm a huge fan of the Inklings, hmm. and uh, I'm really excited to... Uh, chat about about this topic with you guys okay uh, um and i can vouch for uh i apologize to, to the listeners I'm, I'm a little bit hoarse uh but uh yeah i can vouch for the the art is really uh phenomenal um i'm really excited to uh get one of those uh icons and put them above my bed because um I, I think you've really uh honed in on a specific style that really brings that history to life. Um, I was explaining to Matt a little bit before the show that my, uh, my dad was, uh, he like mainlined, um, history, history channel. And, um, uh, that, that there was that, uh, show mysteries at the museum. Um, <laughs> that was like, you know, if you read, uh, Kyrie, um, you know, that it's that type of thing of like, go you know, like finding the story behind some of that, uh, history, um, Melissa and I have been uh, watching a lot of. <laughs> um, Melissa and I have been watching a lot of uh, Nightfall, um, which is a, a new uh, History Channel show about um, the Templars, um, and it's it's kind of gotten us thinking more about uh, historical uh, fiction and and stuff like that. So I'm excited to have you uh, on the show. Um, so uh, how did you find? Narnia, how did you first learn about Lewis and, and start getting interested in him? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I guess it started probably like a lot of people. My my parents, my mom had the books. Uh, she had a printing from the, the 60s, so I guess it's pretty early. I never checked how early, but um, I read them as a kid, and always liked them. I was a little confused. Everyone has their favorite books and their less favorite books. But I always found them um, a really, I guess, intriguing uh, series. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess I'd say their their themes kind of eluded me until mm-hmm. later in life. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> so, and that kind of, when I, when I found... Um, which is what I guess one of the things we're going to be talking about, Michael, Michael Ward's um, Planet Narnia kind of theory mm-hmm. kind of rekindled my interest. And in, um, I've always been a fan of him as a man, and I liked his apologetic writings and some of his more, um, uh, like, till we have faces kind of uh, possibly less for adults kind of literary works. Okay. Um, but returning to his kids lit, um, I've just been absolutely floored with uh, the the thematic in- intricacies. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because uh, as I was remembering it, kind of two things stuck out. One was that um, kind of the satanic panic around Harry Potter, um, <laughs> put, kind of situated it in my mind as this is the good fantasy um, versus versus that. But then uh, the more the more that we've been delving delving into him and, and Tolkien's work this month, um, it's kind of made me think about how kind of like punk rock him and Tolkien were kind of like when they were writing what they were writing, trying to bring fairy tale into this um, realm of you know doing some of that more like allegorical and you know like basically rein, reinvigorating fantasy as this like it can be high fantasy it can be something that deals with larger themes um it also brought to mind uh alice in wonderland because i had i had read alice in wonderland and narnia both as a child 
And both of them kind of have this idea of, you know, delving into imagination. And it's like, rather than like something like Pilgrim's Progress, where everything has an immediate uh, allegory to a specific, like, rather than either of them being like moralizing, it kind of invites you into these more complex worlds of, um, like, you can have this personal relationship with somebody like Aslan and it doesn't it and specifically C.S. Lewis seemed to have a problem with like his boarding school and with adults in general um so seeing that like all this wonderment through the eye of a child like those images stuck with me even uh, unto my uh adulthood um and that's how I kind of wanted to get into the Narnia series I feel like the the title the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to me, kind of sums up the what's interesting to me about the whole series. That, like, you know, uh, picturing Christ as this lion, um, there's a very powerful idea of like it's it's this uh, relationship that they have with this uh, you know demigod-like figure, um, but like the children, you know learn to trust him and but he's not tame like there's all that stuff about this uh him being this kind of uh mystical figure that you have this personal uh relationship with and so the the um as somebody especially being you know a young boy learning to understand the complexities of this uh you know the religion that I was in that I was growing into having that you know, be a part of my imaginative um, world was always, yeah. Uh, yeah, an interesting thing. It was always something that uh, took it, you know, because that that's the interesting thing about being a kid is that you have so much imagination and so, but you also have problems struggling with abstract ideas. So um, it Aslan is this way of like, very concretely seeing this Christ figure and seeing what C.S. Lewis is trying to do with that. Um, but also uh, it's, it's all these, all these different facets of Aslan as a character show you the different aspects of Christ and uh, what being in a relationship with Christ actually uh, means. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. But getting, um, I think um, there's some quote I've read about Lewis said that um, uh, truth truth can really impact you. I mean, this is a very loose paraphrasing, <laughs> but like uh, truth works best when it can get past the, I think it's the sleeping dragons of your intellect. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I think is, um, whereas his earlier works in general were more like it's, he wrote more of his apologetic work earlier in life mm. and um, more of his direct, like the, uh, the ransom trilogy. Um, the first of which is that, um, out of the silent planet, uh, and later in life he wrote Narnia. And I think, I think that was more of his mature, even though it's, it, you know, on first pass, people think it's for kids. I think that's, that's when he was incorporating some of, some of his earlier stuff that was written to the intellect more. Mm. He started writing it to the imagination more mm. just to, um, and made it more meaningful and lasting as a result, I think. Sure. And um, on the flip side, having the satanic character be this witch that kind of like changes form within the different books uh, in, in Magician's Nephew, you get this very kind of, uh, you know, this creation myth version of uh, a witch. And then uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's this idea of uh, the witch being in direct warfare with Aslan. Um, and then uh, that same intimacy that Aslan has with the children, um, you know, right away the white witch is trying to tempt uh edmund with the turkish delight that she has but then later on she becomes or he becomes her like prisoner um and that 
was also an interesting choice that he made to uh, embody. Um, and, and we got into this a little bit with Tolkien, uh, how he made Sauron this overwhelming, you know, the captain of this really like demonic uh, military force, but like the real visceral thing that you get from Lord of the Rings is that, you know, Sauron is this person that gives rings to people and is trying to gain their allegiance. And Frodo, Frodo's real struggle is against the temptation of the ring directly. Um, you get somewhat of that same thing with uh, the witch. Um, and so is there anything about um, how he writes the different evil characters that, that spoke to you? Oh yeah, yeah, and this this gets into the um, the Michael Ward stuff too. Um, so in particular, so Lion in the Witch in the Wardrobe, the first book, in in order of publishing, you've got a um, um, how, tell me tell me if I'm trying to indoctrinate you in something you're not terribly aware of. But <laughs> this, this medieval cosmological kind of backgrounding. To these books, like how how well read are you on that? Because well, I can I can survey it quickly. Oh, go want. sure, go ahead because I I, I have read, um, I've read Mere Christianity and the Screw Tape Letters, um, but not as much critical theory about uh, about Tolkien. Oh, sorry oh, about great. about Lewis. <laughs> You'll love this. You'll <laughs> love this. This is a whole new layer. This is the foundation. So. Okay, so that's the first book. It, it's about, um, so I guess thematically, I'm going to do this with um, The White Witch and with Aslan in okay. that particular book. So Aslan is, he's the, um, he's framed differently in each book, same as The White Witch. Um, okay. His name is escaping me right now. Um, so Aslan is the, uh, in that particular book, he's, the, he's talked about, uh, more than any other book as the king. He's the one who comes, uh, currently they're under the White Witch, they're in a world that's always winter and never Christmas. Uh, he's the he's the king who returns and brings uh, laughter back. He brings joy back and mm-hmm. warmth. Uh, he physically warms the country back. Uh, he, um, uh, the, 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 the Narnia creatures like uh, feast in his presence and things of that sort. Um, he right. and he also. He, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, no, I was I was in agreement. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he's also um, and this is the key. He's also the wounded king, mm. and all these th- and so he's he's um, this all ties into the medieval cosmological framework. So that that's under the. Um, this is where uh, Lewis gets in, instead of being the safe uh, Christian writer, he becomes more punk rock. This, this goes uh-huh. into um, how the Lion, the Wish, and War Rope is under a sphere of influence of a Jupiterian mm-hmm. kind of framework. So Jupiter or Jove um, in medieval writing, uh, they kind of transferred it's, it's called transferred classicism. So they would take um, and Milton mm-hmm. Uh, Spencer, uh, um, Dante, all these writers that Lewis spent all his professional life, his day job, writing about, um, he, he kind of mimics what they were doing in his own fiction. So he took this Jovian influence, which he always wrote about as being like something that he particularly identified with, of the um, the king who is, is joyful and happy and makes his subjects um, at rest and brings peace to the land and lights fires and that sort of thing. Uh, he imbibed, um, he wanted to see how he could portray Christ through that Jovian lens, if that sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you've got this, this framework of like Christ as, um, you know, by whom and in whom all things are knit together. But if you could take a, um, if you could fractalize that into seven, if you could, if you could take a, um, if you could break that down into like seven dimensions, I guess, mm-hmm. of like character, uh, medieval character tropes, uh, one would be like a Jovian influence. So that's, that's basically, I don't know if that make, makes sense. So the White Witch 
is kind of the the antithesis in that particular book of mm-hmm. that Jovian um, archetype. So she's the one who's, like I said, she's bringing winter. She's not bringing Christmas. Incidentally, that's the that's the reason why um, Father Christmas shows up. Right. All things Nick, which mm-hmm. which uh, Tolkien, not picking up on this um, framework, thought was like jarring and um, a silly addition to the book, and he found right. it very distasteful. And I think a lot of people do today, and I did as a kid. I, I thought it was quite strange. Mm-hmm. But Saint Nick is that Jovian archetype mm-hmm. um, applied just in a different in a different way. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and then really the Turkish delight, everyone remembers the Turkish delight. It's a nice symbol, but really what the White Witch is is um is tempting with is is kingship. She's saying to Edmund, like, I will give you she's really giving she's tempting him with something that he was being offered to begin with under right. Aslan. Like, I will make you a king. Um, and you'll be, you know, you'll be the only king. And so she's tempting him with the, this dark, the shadow side of that Jovian influence. It's like, I want to be this autocratic ruler, and I want to take revenge on my subjects, or mm-hmm. I want to, to freeze them, you know, like the witch does. Or right. I want to, to silence um, joy from the land in order to, to keep things in control. And, and the Jovian, the positive Jovian Christ, Christ as the greater Jove, um, uh, brings freedom back into the land and brings the, the true and rightful kings who allow everything else to fit in, in its right order and freely uh, live and play in, you know, in this uh, redeemed springtime kind of thing. Right. So that's, I threw a lot at you, <laughs> but that that's kind of the framework. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that the, um, it's interesting because uh, yeah. in modern Protestant, um, you know, culture, there are, there isn't really as strong a delineation between, you know, trying to create some kind of way of translating Christ and Christianity versus actual, like creating an idol or creating, you know, some kind of graven image. And so what I feel like uh, C.S. Lewis did really well was create this, uh, fairy tale and fantasy setting um in a way that would translate hit like the relationship between all these different things without outright like it didn't seem as a reader like he's trying to get you to worship worship jupiter (laughs) or like that there was anything specifically special about uh you know medieval iconography itself but it was yeah. a very convenient way, like like for a child to see, you know, like Christmas and is on Aslan's side, <laughs> as this way of saying like Aslan is yeah. trying to to awaken joy and awaken festivity, and that he his version of kingship, his version of his kingdom, is more powerful than the witch's kingdom, and so that you get a lot of that within those things. Uh, The last piece that I want to get into is um, we, we, you know, I was saying that we were going to watch Shadowlands and we did, and we both cried. Mm. Um, (laughs) But um, uh, the one, the one, one of the parts that stuck out to me was he's describing the wardrobe to uh, his friends and uh, C.S. Lewis's character. And so he uh, describes the beauty of, uh, going through this portal um, and uh, there's a lot about that portal fantasy that has carried it's been extremely influential in uh, fantasy in general um, and I wanted to ask if there was anything specific about uh, that that you feel like um, you know like not knowing not knowing that history and not knowing uh, specifically how his research uh, how Lewis's research might have influenced that is there anything that that um, brings to mind? Uh, specifically, the wardrobe. Yeah, the because um, I I think yeah the 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 portal imagery of that I feel like um, per- personally what that uh, brings to mind for me is that idea of uh, you have something like like say Lord of the Rings that is much more like this is this other world 
it has no connection to our world. But Lewis really gets across in the wardrobe this image of magic is right around the corner. And I feel like that it was a very mature way in his way of doing that, of making like connections to uh, the, the, um, the idea of, of the, the readers being able to access that in some way without making it, um, you know, uh, without cheapening it. You know, there, there's a lot of that yeah. within, his, within his writing. I, I think, um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, I think he took, when it comes to archetypes of that sort, <laughs> I think he took a lot from George MacDonald. Uh-huh. Like the, uh, at the back of the North Wind, um, Princess and the Goblin. They have a lot of those kind of um, elements of the magical world. Okay. Kind of um, just kind of being, you just you just have to turn a corner and it's there. Mm. And um, and I think Chesterton in general, um, though, you know, not really not a fictional, not a, a fiction writer. He, um, I mean, he had a powerful influence on him, and I think. I think of his his idea, I guess, like his approach to writing, which I think is not very varied, but it's very particular and strong. His idea of um, taking something and then flipping it on its ear and trying to show a deeper truth to something um, in an ironic way, I guess, to show you um, an inverted or unexpected, um, usually the opposite from what you would expect, and then show you that there's a deeper truth. In, in that inversion, I guess. Uh-huh. And I think that's what he, doing things like taking um, mundane objects like the wardrobe or a, uh, a picture of a, um, you know, a ship, um, a painting of a ship and, you know, on the wall of your, uh, your aunt and uncle's house or something or that sort of thing. And, um, and, and bringing that and making that more real mm-hmm. than the, um, the world that you, you know, just stepped out of is, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's what he's drawing from. But you know, I guess that's, I guess that's like a um, fairy tale kind of um, device that mm. is pretty common. He, he just kind of warped it in particular ways in, very, in a very McDonald-esque way, I think. Okay. Yeah, the, yeah. The, all very interesting stuff. Uh, I think after the break, uh, we'll get into... Um, out of the silent planet and yeah. they have faces. Um, Wonderful. All right. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. With podcast magic, we are back. Um, and so I haven't read uh, out of the silent planet or until we have faces. So I'm going to rely entirely on you. Take over the show. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, as uh, Melissa will, uh, you know, attest, she uh, like she references these all the time when I bring up when I bring up Lewis, um, <clears throat> and she has some questions here. Uh, he so she she was saying that out of the Silent Planet, while being a sci-fi, uh, I guess it maybe a name only thing, uh, that there are medieval elements, and that they eventually later in the series grow to even be Arthurian, uh, and and Merlin you know shows up. So, uh, yes. th- so she her question here is, uh, does the mythic angle make it, because uh, she uh, make it more relatable, or is there a way that it makes it more uh, esoteric? Uh, because she she's been clear that that as you said, uh, being early in his career, um, it it was uh, it's very dense in comparison yeah. to uh, what what some some people more. Um, you know, generally would be aware of with being, if you're a fan of, of the Narnia series. Uh, so go into a little bit about how he uses, um, you know, Arthurian legends and uh, in the Out of the Silent Planet and any pros or cons. <clears throat> well, so as you said, uh, he wrote the Ransom trilogy uh, before he started his the Narnia and um, they're actually tied um, thematically in a lot of ways. Okay. And that Arthurian um, cycle is important. Also, this medieval cosmological thing plays into that too, because there's a, um, uh, I, 
always butcher this. I think they're called Elendil, something of that sort. There's a uh, there's an angel uh, with a sphere of influence over each planet that um, Ransom travels to. Okay. <laughs> I know <laughs> you're thinking he's talking about this again. <laughs> this is this is how this is why it's um, fantasy. And I mean, it's sci-fi in the sense that they build a spacecraft and uh-huh. travel to these planets. But once yes. they get there, they experience a mythic, a medieval mythic uh, planet at each site. Um, okay. They go to uh, Mars and they experience a Martian world uh, of a um, in the in the classical sense of uh, uh, Mars had influence over trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it was also um, the martial. Uh, God, so there's um, there's a lot of issue with um, uh, warlike influences going on there, um, and he deals with that thematically. But um, before before just to um, set the stage just a bit more, so Charles Williams was one of um, he's also an inkling, as I'm sure you know, and he was one of um, Jack's uh, Lewis's best friends and he died I think in just a couple months after the war ended but he um, I think it's easy to say that he was the strangest inkling (laughs) yeah uh, my sister uh, read a book about inkling not too many months ago and she was explaining to me kind of trying her her darndest to summarize what some of them actually uh, you know believed and what some of their um you know, research was about, and oh, yeah. like as as somebody that doesn't readily uh, recall those types of you know complex discussions that we have sometimes. Sure. <laughs> just the name Williams, I'm getting this kind yeah. of like nomask flashback of like, oh yeah, I remember. That's like that's weird. That like in the back of my mind, it's kind of like pinpricking me of like that's important because there's there's something about him. So I I'd love for you to elaborate (laughs) yeah yeah well the ransom trilogy is a direct um and this is more well known this is it's a direct kind of answer to um some of charles williams's own writings which um he found he found uh williams's right he was a uh he was an editor for oxford university press okay and he was um he he never finished college he was from a poor background he had a very chaotic kind of education. Um, he was into the Rosicrucian order, which is kind of like um, uh, 19th century Christian occultism, I okay. guess. Mm-hmm. Roman Catholic, uh, Kabbalah, kind of, it, it's safe to say it's pretty weird stuff. <laughs> and his, his fiction works are incredible. They're deeply Arthurian. Um, some people say he's the greatest Arthurian um writer of the 20th century huh. uh, he was highly critically acclaimed in the small circles that knew him but um, he had trouble gaining an audience and he died in middle age he was a very eccentric guy didn't make a ton of friends I guess outside of the inklings so hmm. not a lot of people know about him but hmm. Lewis was absolutely um, dumbstruck and in love with his works and all of his works deal with out of the, the the mythopoetic break into the modern world, this, this, the modern sensibility of um, uh, rationalistic, scientistic kind of um, reductionism that the that him and his that Lewis and his friends and Williams uh, found themselves in in the mid twentieth century. How does the great um, and awesome uh, uh, sublime power of God himself kind of crashed through those sort of things. And so he would tell stories about um, the platonic ideal of the lion of all things. Uh, what if the, the perfect lion, the lion, the prototypical lion upon which every other lion is just a copy and a shadow. What if that lion broke into England and the, the just walked across the countryside in the 1930s and what would people do if they saw the perfect lion? Like it's like strange things like that. Or what if someone um, found a the ring of Solomon that would allow them to time travel? And what it, it's like really strange. And he would always start in this very banal 
um, like hyper-realistic um, modern setting of the 1930s, which is when most of his books were written, mm-hmm. and and then slowly progressed towards this this realm of it would feel from a modern perspective like everything would just crumble. It would feel like absolute chaos, and then you'd be swept up into this. Um, imaginative uh, supernatural space of uh, framing things within um, the medieval cosmological element would be part of it but it was it's very strange but it's it's kind of um, supernatural realism or magic realism that sort of thing so that's, okay. that's kind of what Williams was doing and Lewis fell in love with it and then he wrote all three um, starting with Out of the Science Planet in response to that intentionally trying to hammer out, like, what if I could do that sort of thing? What if I could write, um, you know, in the epic romantic poetry of, you know, 14th, 15th century authors, English authors that I'm studying in my day job, but if I could just have that crash through the 20th century, so he would have, you know, like a modern man uh, who was styled after Tolkien, I think, just kind of thrown into... um, thrown into venus and turns out venus is is uh under the sphere of you know the classical venus aphrodite of of love uh sensuality uh laughter beauty um that sort of thing uh and what would this do to an average man uh who went there and then what if all those things in the by the third book spoiler alert what if all those weird influences came crashing down to earth Mm and all started penetrating the modern world as we experienced it. Like, and who would, what forces in the world would be trying to attack that, to, to resist it, and what would it do? Like, it's it's strange. And it received, I think, a mixed response. And I think it was probably too on the nose for him. Mm-hmm. And so he would, he would later go um, and do his Narniad, and then he would, after that, um, which I think is a more subtle expression of the same themes, and then um, Till We Have Faces was later on with uh, after he met uh, Joy uh, Davidman, mm-hmm. which was his, um, well, I'll, I'll stop there. What do you think? So that, that's kind of the Ransom Trilogy in a nutshell is the, what if the modern world got, um, got keyboned by the mythopoetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a good way of, of summarizing it. Um, yeah. And... The, I think that's a little of what I was getting to before the show of yeah. how it seems like a lot of mod, uh, writers in the modern era felt that all of the uh, optimism of their writing was basically, you know, under attack after, you know, uh, after two world wars and like all this, you know, what, what, uh, nihilism that that was invading literature. It seems to me yeah. like rather than uh, using those things, like for example, if you read uh, "On the Road" by Cormac McCarthy, it seems like uh, the the uh, you know he describes truth as like this this uh, torch. Uh, it's a, it's actually common among a lot of his novels, but it's like there's one person that's holding the light and and every and they're being encroached upon by you know death death and disease and all these things but when you go and read some of the inklings writing it seems like they're living in a world where like the sublime is you know as you said running through the street like a roaring lion um and so it's so it's so it's so encouraging to read some of their things and and how they were able to have such a a lasting impression and legacy based on these fantasy stories that had so much truth within them. Uh, and that, you know, it seems to have diverged, uh, in terms of academic writing, um, uh, for, for, you know, so drastically, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you got, uh, to this, to out of the silent planet. Um, it's my, uh, my sister's notes for that are about how, uh, the, it's a story of loss um, told in a uh, uh, more mythic way, uh, so I'd love to get your opinion on on out of the silent or sorry out of uh, till we have faces and what how that how that embodied uh, more of Lewis's ideas. Well, I think 
if I, um, I've always understood uh, Till We Have Faces as kind of a joint effort between Joy Davidson and Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think um, that was a story that she said that she had been working on since she was a little girl. And um, as you know, like they were only married for two years, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and they had that the lasting friendship leading up to that. But I think it was in service to her that he tried to elevate that story to the level um, that it deserved. I've always liked it. I don't, maybe, um, I've, I read it about five years ago, and I, I loved it a lot. The, the loss and the heartbreak is incredible. It's so I guess it, um, just to frame it, it's, it's basically, it, it's Cupid and Psyche. Uh, but told kind of, um, I guess he just kind of sets it as if what if this was an historical kind of story, you know, what if this uh, literally happened in a way um, in classical Greece and and, and um, the the Roman story that would come much later is is the that's the mythical version, and then here's the historical version. And, and I guess there's, there's two sisters and there's, there's one who by all accounts is not particularly pretty or well-liked. And then there's one who's, uh, you know, fabulously attractive and well-liked and there, uh, the narrator is, is the unattractive one. And she's, it's, it's a story of her, um, uh, over the course of the story, I, if I remember right, she, okay, so her, her younger sister, the attractive one, is is offered up to, I think it's Apollo. Okay. And I should have done my, my research. And Apollo is, is real in the story, and he takes her, and um, no, you know what? This is so terrible. You might have to edit this out. <laughs> Cupid and Psyche. Um, it's... Uh, Psyche is offered up to Cupid. That's the okay. character. That's the god. And um, you can leave this in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, and, you're um, doing great. <laughs> back on track. Um, and she goes out on a quest to find her sister again uh, to do the unthinkable, which is to kind of break into the realm of the gods and um, to make sure her sister's okay. If I'm and um, and she succeeds in doing that, and the, the tragedy is, uh, as you would expect from a mythic tale, um, breaking into that realm and doing what she does, she kind of breaks the order of 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 the world, I guess, in uh-huh. a sense. And um, uh, she she finds that her sister was actually really happy in that relationship. And she, um, she, she struggles with, oh gosh, I'm having, I'm having trouble. <laughs> I believe if I remember right, she, she struggles with the loss of losing her sister to the gods, a, a sister that she envied and, um, living in exile as a priestess, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I wish your sister was here. She could, um, <laughs> on track i probably went off on a couple times it's it's a nice story because but because it's it's playing against an already written roman version uh-huh. and i think because it's in um it's in loving service to his wife i think he finished it after her passing actually okay and and i'm sure it was a uh, as a result it's a it's a way of him to um deal with grief and loss um, through, through the, the, the narrator character mm. and, um, yeah, so it's, it's good. It's very good. It doesn't have, it doesn't click the way, um, Ransom or the Narnia stuff does, I think, because mm. it doesn't have a, um, a, uh, architectural framework that he's trying to, to innovate with. If that oh, makes okay. sense. Yeah. Cause trying to be endearing, I guess. Okay. Yeah, and I, and I, we, uh, Melissa and I had a, had a similar struggle with uh, an adaptation of the uh, Achilles story. Um, I think it's called it's Song of Achilles, um, which was was uh, Achilles and Patroclus romance, and trying to, 
adapt that as and, and make it this tragic story. Um, but but it kind of has that prequelitis that like um, the the Star Wars prequels I think are associated with, where you don't get much drama from the story because it's mostly just them enjoying their romance, and then the third act of the story is the actual Trojan War, where if you know the story, uh, you know Patroclus is, you know, dresses as Achilles and is being killed, and it's kind of it kind of gives you the I compared it to uh, Man of Steel, the, the recent Superman adaptation, where you know it, it might be nice that to watch Superman and Lois Lane kiss, but they're kissing in a crater at the end of a was supposed to be a Superman movie. <laughs> so like that that kind of lack of having heroism be, um, you know, something that's like. You know, you want to see Superman save the day, not, you know, save the day after, you know, tens of thousands of people have been killed. You kind of get that same feeling with Song of Achilles. And so in this, and I can identify with your your kind of critique of Till We Have Faces that like doing that with somebody else's story, whether it's Superman or, you know, Achilles or this, this myth of Cupid and Psyche, you're not, you don't have the freedom of, you know, doing everything that you want to do. And because Lewis was so, and especially if personally he had this burden to tell the story that Joy had uh, already, you know, come up with, it's kind of an even bigger uh, burden for him to make sure that it it's the story that she wanted to tell. And it might not necessarily be the type of story that he would normally, you know, uh, be interested in telling. Um, so is there is yeah. there anything that you wanted to say uh, before we sign off, whether it's about uh, Till We Have Faces or, or any of the other, uh, excuse me, things you like about Lewis? Well, one thing, I need to correct myself on a bit of Till We Have Faces. Sure. So it's, um, uh, just so you have slightly less people writing in angrily, um, saying, who is this person that- like, why was he even talking about this book that he clearly didn't understand? Please, I would, I would love hate mail. Hate mail would, <laughs> hate mail would be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'll write you a couple. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> um, so the narrator, the older sister, um, she, she coerces her, the um, beautiful sister, to, um, to betray her husband, this god by um and she doesn't feel like doing it and so but because of her love for her sister she decides to do it and then um that that kind of breaks the system so the the marriage is kind of annulled in a sense and mm-hmm. um psyche the the beautiful sister is is um condemned to exile forever and the narrator never sees the sister again so it's kind of like um, the there's like a selfish love, maybe perhaps that is being expressed in the story. Okay. I think of I need my sister back at all costs, mm-hmm. and in order to break her from, in order to love her selfishly, I have to ruin her. I guess mm-hmm. that's that's kind of this is kind of coming back to me. That's, that's sort of broadly what I get from it, um, because he's patterning the story like you said. Um, he can't deviate too much, much thematically from, at least he can't deviate from the plot too much. So I don't think he deviates from the themes too much, which is really just, this is a fun tale, I think, a Roman story. Mm-hmm. So right. I don't, I don't know, but anyway, so that's, that's till we have faces. <laughs> you might want to do a cleanup episode on that at a later <laughs> point of your sister. Well, I, I think definitely we're going to return to Lewis in the future. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'd also love to have you back uh, at some point um, yeah, to fun. talk about uh, whether it's historical fiction or more of these uh, mythological, uh, like fantasy-related uh, novels or comics that um, you know that basically speak to us on that that deeper level. Um, that's that's kind of my last uh, you know my last thoughts on 
Lewis is that he was able to make a lot of these uh, uh, like messages that he had to to and his thoughts get he got them across in a way that doesn't just feel like you're reading Pilgrim's Progress where it's just it's just hitting you over the head with the point that he wants to make or some kind of like moralizing that that often I mean even among even if you're a pastor in seminary you're kind of like you know sleeping during that that type of of lesson um it rather he he was able to embody those things in characters much in the way that if for those of you you know that are are doing uh you know english or or an mfa uh masters in english um you are aware of the whole um uh aristotle drama Thing, you know, like you want the characters to embody these thoughts that you have, not necessarily have, you know, straw straw man characters that are just every choice that they like. You have a character who represents wrath. That guy is angry all the time, <laughs> or like it doesn't need to be necessarily that necessarily that simple simplified. So something like taking Aslan and using the different. Uh, you know the this Jovian idea and having the it split apart into these different characters of uh, of the Christ head um, and and having it be a, making him more dynamic makes it uh, a stronger novel and and um, a stronger message as opposed to relying on uh, sermonizing. Uh, and it's certainly something that within my writing, um, I found that, you know, literary fiction on the one hand has gone off into this, a lot of like dry symbology. And then on the other uh, has, um, you know, c- completely forsakes that in the place of uh, just entertaining entertainment, you know, value and, you know, just writing something that that kind of, uh, you know, what's what's your taste buds? But I think I think Lewis did a good job of balancing uh, his own uh, ideas and and the things that he wanted to get across through symbols. Uh, and but also, you know, you get the truths that he's trying to recall and bring to life uh, without it just be, without cheapening those those things. Um, so yeah, f- yeah, final thoughts. Yeah, I think um, he was he was a great um, he was a brilliant communicator. Uh, he knew how to I think he knew how to talk by all accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew how to um, uh, he knew how to write uh, persuasive arguments. I guess, um, and he did that through fiction, and he did it through nonfiction, uh, and. Um, I think the literary world, I mean, the world in general, but the literary, literary world in particular is indebted to him for this, this, um, this ability. I mean, I guess he considered himself a dinosaur, as I believe he's, he called himself, and uh-huh. uh, taking things, for him, for us, he seems like a brilliant original writer. For him, I think he was just um, trying to bridge um, older traditions, older literary traditions, and bring them how to figure out how to successfully, healthily um, establish them in in the modern world as a valid expression of, um, you know, how to layer complex thoughts with um, valuable, timeless truths. Uh, you know how to how to dimensionally express uh, like a Christological framework. Um, without uh, using uh, modern literary tropes, I guess. Mm. And uh, I think he was, yeah, eminently successful. Many Inklings were, and uh, him in particular, I guess, maybe more so than than any in in some senses. Well, it was... Fighting words. (laughs) (laughs) It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, You're going to come back. Um, I, 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 I'm, 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 uh, uh, and, and, excuse me, uh, yeah, I'm thankful to get your 
perspective on uh, Lewis um, and and being being kind of the person to fill the gap uh, with my sister being being away. Uh, you can um, expect to hear our thoughts about Shadowlands. Uh, they'll probably also be up by the time uh, this episode goes up. Um, and uh, <clears throat> remind the people again where they can find uh, Kyrie and uh, you, you at large on the internet. Yeah, well, we've just uh, moved everything to my personal website. So if you go to mattkrotz.com, you can find uh, every issue. We've got two books so far, about 250 pages worth of uh, comic material for Kyrie so far. And then it's got, we've, we're in production for two more. Great. You can find that at mattkrotz.com. And then you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, also at mattkrotz. All right. Um, um, I'm at uh, John Matos Writer on most things. Um, about to start launch my my website, JohnMatosWriter.com, um, and you can find uh, Cain and Abel, uh, modernization of the uh, Bible story, um, on Amazon, uh, on Audible or um, physical digital copies. Um, and thanks for listening to Unboxing Story. We'll talk to you again soon.